And turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. As I said, this, uh, this more resembles the second portion of what uh, Galatians says, though, in reverse. If we saw Paul perplexed about the Galatians and uh, standing ready to rebuke their unbelief, their willingness to depart from the gospel. Here we find Paul expressing gratitude for these Christians in Rome. And, uh, and we're just beginning to, to, to consider this. This is what he says. Uh, the section goes to verse 15. But the first three verses, For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you, that is to say, for your own word to us, which is as it was to Israel at Mount Sinai, you speaking to us. Though as they prayed, I suppose we would pray as well, Lord, and that is, your voice, it would seem, is, is so great as to terrify us. We thank you that you speak through a mediator. That is to say, through these apostles, just as you spoke through Moses. In our fleshly sinfulness, we can hardly bear your voice in any other way. But we thank you that you have spoken to us through the apostles and the prophets and indeed through your son in scripture. We pray that as the church we might have reason with Paul to rejoice and to thank you for this, this word and uh, what you are doing in our midst as a result of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We had been considering verses 1 through 7, and uh, with that we come to a break uh, or a transition in the letter. Verses 1 through 7 laid the foundation for the main teaching that then comes in verses 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes and so on. That's the main teaching, the main thesis. Uh, which he goes on to expound for the remainder of the letter. Verses 1 through 7 lay the foundation. Uh, verses 1 through 7 also introduce the author Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the recipients to, to all who are in Rome, describing both in their relation to the gospel, which he summarized in verses 2 through 4. And it might seem natural at that point, having done that in verses 1 through 7, to move straight to his argument from verse 7 to verse 16. But there's something he wants to do first. And you notice the word first is the first word in verse eight. Something he needs to express to them in order for it to be clear to them why he is writing this letter. If verses one through seven are more of a general introduction to the letter with customary greetings and uh, a summary of the gospel, as we found again, for instance, in Galatians, verses eight through 15 have a more personal touch, as indeed the following verses uh, and Galatians do as well, though of a very different nature. Paul is expressing here how he feels about the Roman Christians, that they were, uh, as he's saying, dear to his heart. He thanks God for them. He prays for them constantly. He expresses his earnest desire to visit them, that they might be established and mutually encouraged. And also, he takes the trouble to write this letter to them. So obviously these were Christians who were dear to his heart. But the amazing thing is that Paul, the great apostle, should feel about these Christians as he does. And as he expresses here, for as you know, 
These were Christians that Paul had never met. Paul had never been to Rome. And when you think of that and you see him saying what he does, it really is quite amazing. And they, in turn, had only ever heard of him. Leading John Murray to say about uh, these verses, verse 8 in particular, the bond of Christian fellowship is not limited to the circle described by personal acquaintance. In other words, your own local church. The bond of Christian fellowship is far wider. It is far broader than that. And so we see immediately in the, in the Apostle Paul and what he's expressing in this new section, verses 8 through 15, and how he felt about these Christians whom he never met, his uh, broad churchmanship. Paul was a broad churchman. That is, he wasn't a narrow churchman. He did not confine his Christian fellowship to those Christians he knew. The Apostle Paul was one who was bound to all who were Christian. And that was enough for him. He wasn't given to a party spirit. You remember how he begins 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He didn't say, unless you are of Paul, I will not preach to you. His only interest was, are you a Christian? Are you among those who are called of Jesus Christ, as we saw last time? Have you obeyed the message of the gospel, verse 4? Or verse 5, excuse me. And even beyond that, we see that he would he would preach to anyone at all who would listen, even unbelievers. Although that's not to say that he viewed himself as having fellowship with unbelievers, but he was duty bound to preach even to them, as we'll see in verses 14 and 15 when we get there. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So the way to view these verses, again, verses 8 through 15 as a new unit, and I'm not alone in expressing this, is to see the apostle's heart on display. How he felt about his fellow believers, how he felt about God and the gospel and so on. So we get a glimpse into his inward motivations, what Robert Haldane calls, and I entitled the sermon with this phrase, the character of his ministry. And really, we're only beginning to do so as we go through these verses in several sermons. We will notice uh, again and again the character of his ministry. So let me again emphasize we're only beginning to do so. Again, we have seen him express his relation to the gospel. Verses 1 through 4. And then the relation of his readers to the gospel. Verses 5 through 7. But here, what he's expressing in verses 8 through 15 is his relation to them. As an apostle and as a minister of the gospel. And this includes many useful insights into the nature of the ministry. Not just Paul's ministry, but the ministry in general. And uh, equally of true Christian fellowship. What is it that binds the apostle and the minister to the people? What is it that binds every Christian together? That's what we'll be considering. In other words, what is it that brings us together Sunday by Sunday? And so let us begin in this sermon to consider uh, his ministry to those who were in Rome under these these headings, which he's expressing here. The first thing we see, what Paul says first, is that his ministry is one of thanksgiving. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That is all the believers in Rome to whom he was writing. You see, before Paul can get to the point of the letter, which again begins really in verse 16, he has to express his thanksgiving. 
And this is not uncommon, as I say. It's a standard practice, except for in Galatians, where instead of being thankful, he's bewildered. But uh, but if you look at the other epistles, I'll just I'll just give one example. The nearest example, you will see this is what Paul does. He doesn't launch uh, into the, the epistle uh, or to the argument. He begins with thanksgiving. Verse four of first Corinthians chapter one. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Jesus Christ. And, and on and on he goes. And so it's the same thing here. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Well, let me notice three things about his thanksgiving for the Roman Christians, which we read in verse eight. And the first thing that we ought to notice, again, this is a model of ministry, a model of Christian fellowship, is that his thanksgiving is offered to God. And so the first point about the thanksgiving is the object of thanksgiving. Notice, and this is an important point, I'll make something of it in a moment, he doesn't thank them. He doesn't say, I thank you. In one sense, you realize he is commending them for their faith, and he might have thanked them, but he isn't thanking them. He's thanking God for them. For God is ever the object of praise and thanksgiving for this apostle and for the church. The apostle Paul was, as we will see, a servant of God and not of men. That will become the second point. But here, thanksgiving, where there was evidence that the gospel was taking hold as it had in Rome and that men and women were coming to believe it, it was reason to thank God. Now, the point might be obvious, and it is obvious, but I wonder... Along with Martin Lloyd-Jones, I wonder, is it not sometimes our tendency in the church today to thank men rather than God? To be thankers of men, I'm saying, rather than thankers of God. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I can never understand ministers who thank people for attending a service and who tell them what good and nice people they are. We are not to be praised, my friends. It's God who is to be praised for what we are. Well, I think that's an extremely important point, and yet one which I feel the church often overlooks today. Too often we find men who occupy the pulpit who are, what I'm saying, are thankers of men. They, uh, they act something like a cheerleader to the congregation rather than in their true office as the spokesman of God to the people. Well, this man is there, he thinks, at their leave. And he feels that he must thank them for his ministry rather than God for them. Do you understand the difference, beloved? A true minister is one who thanks God always, whereas the imposter is one who thanks man. I was once impressed by this point uh, in seminary when I thanked the minister. Actually, it was a seminary professor for his sermon. And what he said in response really uh, impressed me. And I've always thought of this. And at times in my better moments, I've tried to model it myself. I, again, I thanked him for the sermon. Thank you for your sermon. It's a blessing to me. And do you know what he said in response? He didn't say thank you. He didn't say you're welcome. He said, praise God. You see, the sermon had done some good. I was aware of it. He was aware of it. And I thanked him. But he didn't thank me for my comment. He praised God, which is the point. I thank my God. That's what Paul is doing here, and that's what we ought to do. That's what I ought to do. 
And so that's the first thing. A true ministry and a true basis of Christian fellowship is built around thanksgiving to God, even as we are interacting together man to man. But then the second point with regard to the thanksgiving that he offers is uh, what was he thankful for, which is equally important to notice. He was thankful for their faith. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Verse eight. In other words, and I've already said this, what Paul thanked God for was that the gospel was taking hold. That these men and women in Rome of all places had heard the gospel and believed it. Here was reason for thanksgiving. New churches springing up in unlikely places. The same thing is happening, happening today. And it is equally reason for rejoicing and thanksgiving. Can we as Christians hear such things and not thank God for it? Again, new churches springing up in likely places. And if you know anything about Rome at this time, you'd understand why I say that. And soon we'll see what kind of place Rome was as we go on with chapter one and we get to verse 18 and following. It was a place of untold vice and wickedness and worldliness. And yet here were believers. Here was the gospel advancing even in Rome. I thank my God for your faith, which is spoken of in the whole world. Again, you notice the person we thank is not the person who believed. It is God whom we thank. We see what he's doing. We recognize the work of his hands and we thank him that we should not be the only believers in the world, but that we should find believers elsewhere. Again, you notice his broad churchmanship. He was bound to all who were Christians, all who obeyed the gospel and how thankful we are to hear of believers in Christian fellowship springing up elsewhere along with Paul and how intimately our hearts are bound to theirs as soon as we do. But let me also notice this, that when such a thing occurs, it will be spoken of again, new churches springing up in unlikely places. What is the result? It's spoken of. It becomes known broadly. In a widespread way, which is another lesson, if you are thinking of it the way I'm thinking of it, and that is the way of the church. How is she to proceed? Well, see how much she depends upon God. And see how it is that God causes the gospel to advance in the world. Well, how does it happen? Let me offer you the second quote I want to read from Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons on these verses. And there were several. I, I know it seems like I'm going at a slow pace. You should try reading his Mark Lloyd-Jones says this, when the Holy Spirit enters and does his mighty work, it inevitably and always becomes known. God spreads it. He does it still. He always will do it. Oh, that the church would concentrate on experience the power of the Holy Ghost. In other words, that the church would stop trying to make her work known and advertising her work, but rather depend upon the Holy Spirit and then let him make it known once he begins to work. That's how it happens. But also notice this other thing, the third thing to be said with regard to the thanksgiving, and that is that thanksgiving is offered to God because of their faith, only because of Jesus Christ. And so the third point about thanksgiving is that of mediation. We saw that last time. Jesus is the mediator. He is the medium by which Paul thanked his God. He is the person who is at the center of the gospel, as we saw in verses 3 through 4. 
The gospel concerning God's son who was born, who was declared Jesus or or the son of God with power. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the gospel is about him. And he is the one, therefore, who makes this Thanksgiving possible. He does so in many ways. First, he is, as I was just saying, the message of the gospel. The gospel is about them. And that was the gospel they believed. Excuse me. The gospel is about him. And that was the gospel they believed. He is therefore the content and the object of their faith for which he thanks God. Not a generic faith, but faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the gospel. Now spoken of throughout the world. What they believed once more was the message of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And so of course Paul could only thank God through him. Apart from him, what would there, to be, what, what would there be to thank God for? But connected with that is the fact... That he is also the medium of the grace of faith. You remember what was said in verses 5 and 6 and 7 as well. Through him we received grace. Among whom you are also called the called of Jesus Christ. Verse 7. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we recognize Paul is saying there. Is that grace comes to us, it comes to Paul, it comes to those in Rome, it comes to us likewise through him and only through him. In other words, if we have the grace of faith, we got it through him. It was something that we received from him and through him. Through him we have received grace, that is Paul's statement. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, with regard to his mediation... As he becomes the channel of grace to us from God, we also realize his place as the mediator and the intercessor also opens up our access to God. And so if he is the channel through which grace comes to us from God, he is also the channel through which we make our appeals to God as men. It is because of him that we are able with Paul not only to thank God, but to call him my God. I thank my God. Do you see how it all fits together? I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. What is he doing? He's praying a prayer of thanksgiving to the Father in this intimate way. He is drawing near to the throne of grace with boldness in order to thank God for them. And he does so through Jesus Christ. As his great high priest, as his mediator, in just the way we saw described in the book of Romans. Jesus is the one who opens the way and gives the believer access and boldness to enter. Do you realize there could not there couldn't even be thanksgiving but for him? There is no prayer that God listens to nor answers, but the prayer that is offered through and in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you notice how careful Paul is? To safeguard the gospel at every step, even in the simple way. He doesn't just say, I thank my God for you all. He might have said that. But he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And the fact that he keeps saying this of him. Or he keeps speaking of him, I mean. If you, if you were to just analyze what is being said in the opening verses. He speaks. Uh, he speaks. Of himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ in verse 1. He speaks of the gospel that concerns him, verse 3. He speaks of uh, the, the uh, 
the through the grace that they have received through him, verse five, again, of him, verse six, from him, verse seven, through him, verse eight. You will realize how central the mediation of Jesus Christ was to Paul in all of his pastoral dealings. You go to verse nine and you will see it again. For I, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. But having said that, let us see next how Paul describes his ministry as one of service. That's the second point in the same verse, verse nine. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. He is describing his own ministry in terms of a relationship to God. That relationship, he says, was one of service. Paul was, as he says at the beginning in verse one, a servant of God, not because he decided to be quite the opposite. It was as he was still breathing out threats and murder that God called him and set him apart and made him an apostle, as we see in Acts chapter nine. And from that day forward, what dominated his sense of calling, that is to say, uh, his sense of what he was as a minister, and that is that he was a servant of God. And that defined and determined what his ministry looked like always. You remember what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. I read that earlier. Let me read it again. Because he makes the same point. He's answering those who accused him of being a man pleaser. And Paul is saying, how is that possible? For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, as they claimed, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In other words, Paul is looking at these two things as antithetical, as opposed in the strongest possible way, the service of men and the service of God. And he's saying that as a minister, that is, as a servant, for that is what the word minister means, there was only one kind of legitimate service, and that was to God and not to men. Indeed, so strong was his resolve in this regard that he declares in that verse I just read, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, that if he were to seek to please men, that is, if he were to become, as a minister of the gospel, the servant of men, that would be to negate his status as a bondservant of Christ. And so his place as a minister in the church was one of service to God. Going back to what he says in Romans, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Is this something we're clear about, beloved? Or do we still think of the minister as the servant of man? No, the minister is one like Paul who serves God with his spirit in the gospel of his son. And we can further unpack this by looking at two further ideas that we find in this verse. The first is that he does so, he says, with or in his spirit. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. And so it is, as all the commentators agree, a spiritual service. And here we must remember the crucial distinction between the flesh and the spirit, which we considered two sermons ago and which was present in verses three and four about Christ. The contrast according to the flesh, according to the spirit concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. That's the first side. And he was, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit, verse 4, by the resurrection from the dead. 
flesh and spirit. There is the contrast. And I'm saying it is the same contrast which is present here, at least in an implied way. Paul's service or ministry was not carnal. It wasn't fleshly, but it was spiritual. To Paul, this was an all-important distinction. And you could never appreciate his ministry or his sermons or his letters until you were able to appreciate this all-important distinction, the flesh and the spirit. He did not walk or minister according to the flesh. He walked and he ministered according to the spirit. And if to you the flesh is what's important, if having your senses and your feelings and even your intellect excited and thrilled in a carnal way, then what you will find is that the Apostle Paul is nothing to offer you. And this was, in fact, what the early church, uh, many in the early church were finding about Paul, and he has to answer it in, ma- in many different places. You remember, Paul was ridiculed as an apostle, and it was for this reason. He didn't minister according to the flesh. He didn't pander to the flesh as an apostle. He didn't deliver the goods as the philosophers did. He didn't excite the flesh. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at it in terms of the contrast he's working out in terms of his own ministry and his method and model of ministry. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. You see, that's what the flesh does. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. In other words, the flesh was weak. And my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, he says, as to the flesh, I was weak. There was nothing in it. And by that, I mean his ministry for the fleshly person, only things to despise and hold in contempt. And so they did. They did not revere him as they revered the philosophers of the first century. What is more, he tells them that this is something that was deliberate on his part. Do you think that Paul was unable to preach in persuasive words of human wisdom? I tell you that he was. And yet, this was something that he deliberately subdued in himself. This tendency or this ability which he possessed as one of the great minds of the ancient world, perhaps the greatest. And yet he he refused to indulge the people. He refused to give in to the desire of the people. He was constrained by more, uh, by, by more spiritual considerations. And he knew these babes in Christ, these Corinthians, could never become spiritually mature until they could bear a spiritual ministry and spiritual preaching. He wanted their faith not to rest, he says, on the wisdom of man, which is to say the flesh, but on the power of God solely in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Again, first Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five. So that's the other side, not the flesh, but the spirit, he says, spiritual service. Or as he says, in uh, verse 13 uh, of that same chapter, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches again, the flesh but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, speaking spiritual truths to spiritual persons. And yet he laments in chapter 3 that as yet they could not bear such a ministry because they were still fleshly. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. 
I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. But do you see the point that he works out in greater detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? That Paul's ministry was not according to the flesh, but it was according to the spirit. Spiritual truths for spiritual people. A demonstration, he says, of the spirit and of power. Not a pandering to the flesh. And we might ask, how is this achieved? How does one serve God with his spirit or in his spirit in the gospel of his son? Well, by filling out the statement, I think I've answered it. It's only when we make the success of our message depend not on human ingenuity or cleverness, what Paul calls human wisdom and eloquence, but purely upon the message itself. What the world regards as foolish, the cross of Christ, as indeed Paul says in, first, uh, in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And he's saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as well as in the prior chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is saying that the preaching of the gospel... Is a spiritual ministry. It is a display of power, but not by man. It was God's power that is on display. And then, following Paul, committing ourselves solely upon that message, or solely unto that message, well, then we re- rely upon the Holy Spirit to bless it and to give it power according to the Spirit. We don't seek to manufacture the power of the gospel. We depend solely upon the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that the kingdom of God is not a matter of mere talk, but of power. But this power must come from him. Again, it cannot be manufactured. It cannot be contrived by man. Oh, but when the gospel is truly preached in a spiritual manner, what we discover and what we know is that there will be power always. The Holy Spirit is sure to bless it and our faith will be made to rest upon, Paul says, a sure foundation, not the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. And upon that, our faith can surely rest and will never be will never be shaken. That is what Paul means by a spiritual service and a spiritual ministry according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. But then next, you see, he speaks of serving God in the spirit in the gospel of his son. And that's also a noteworthy statement, a point which I've already made more or less in the last point. But here, let me make it explicit. Spiritual service to God is only possible in the gospel of his son. There is no other way to serve God in a spiritual manner. Everything else. Everything that doesn't fall under the rubric of the gospel of his son is, by definition, fleshly service. It is man's service. Only the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ is true spiritual service. And only uh, is it capable of producing in us a true spiritual service. But let us also see that to speak of it in this way of a a spiritual ministry in the gospel of his son, is something that confines and constrains 
what may be considered true and legitimate Christian ministry and Christian service, as well as true and legitimate Christian activity within the church. It all has to do with the gospel of his son. And really, our fellowship has to do with nothing else at all. And just as soon as it begins to do with anything else, however pressing it may seem by the standards of the world, however loudly the world may be crying, this is the thing you ought to be addressing, O Christian. Just as soon as the church begins to address it in the church and as the church, then the church has begun to lose her focus. There's many sad instances of this in the history of the church. What is she doing in that moment? She is beginning to serve and to please and to pander to man rather than to God. Of course, this is the characteristic sin of the modern church and ministry. I think we would agree about that. The church today, speaking very broadly, is not constrained and confined to this gospel, the gospel of his son. So often she takes up and considers other subjects and tries to inject her own voice into the discussion, often in the name of apologetics or Christian witness. But again, the church, as the church acting this way, ceases to be the church. That is not, beloved, why God set up the church. It is not to answer and to resolve the pressing issues of the day, whatever they may be. That isn't why Paul... Uh, or why God called Paul into the ministry, or anyone into the gospel ministry, and that isn't how he builds true Christian fellowship. The reason that Paul, or God called Paul into the ministry was solely for this reason, and that is that God might be served in the Spirit by those who are committed to the gospel of his Son. Not just Paul, but all who are in the church. Of course, that leads us to ask this question, what is the gospel? Well, we've been considering that already. But let me just remind you very simply what the gospel is. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of him or about him or which concerns him. Focusing specifically upon his birth, his death and his resurrection. Here is the message of salvation. Paul will later tell us the gospel that he was so eager to preach to anyone who would listen. And let us see. That this was not only central to Paul's ministry, but that it comprised the entirety of it. The gospel of the Son of God. Of all that he did as a minister, he could say. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. You see, that's the kind of heading under which all of his activities and actions as a minister fell under. And oh, that ministers today might once more be able to say that. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. And let us see as well that nothing so builds the church and nothing so unifies Christians within the church as the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is one final point that I want to make briefly, and perhaps we'll have time to explore this a little further next time. His ministry was one of thanksgiving. It was one of service, a spiritual gospel service. But it also includes, as we see in verses 9 and 10, prayer. Here is what he called God to witness in particular, that without ceasing, he says, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. What we notice about Paul, the apostle, the minister, the Christian, who sought and enjoyed fellowship with other Christians, as we'll see in verses 10 through 12 next time. 
was that prayer was absolutely essential to him. He was a man of prayer. Prayer was for Paul a way of life. And you notice what kind of prayer. This is something which is characteristic as well in the epistles. Intercessory. He was one who always prayed for others. He sought their well-being through all his labors, and this included his prayers. Paul was a man who labored constantly for the welfare and the well-being and the success of the church, not without prayer, but with it and by it. So that Robert Haldane and Shirley, uh, uh, summarizing well the apostles' teaching, says this. Both prayer and labor ought to go together. To pray without laboring is to mock God. To labor without prayer is to rob God of his glory. Until these are conjoined, the gospel will not be extensively successful. And so, not labor without prayer, nor prayer without labor, but both together. That is what describes and defines the ministry of Paul. And in this we see that by prayer he expressed his own dependence and submission to the will of God. Verse 10, that I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Which tells us something about true prayer. He was able by prayer to express his own will. His own desire to God which was to come to them. And in this his desire that his will might be granted by the will of God. And in so far as he could tell there was no conflict between these two. In other words he couldn't see any reason what he was asking of God was contrary to the will of God. And yet he realizes that God in his wisdom had not as yet granted his request, though we know that he would. Eventually, Paul would make it to Rome, though not as he, uh, I think, imagined at this moment. He arrived there in chains. But what we see in this verse, verse 10, is that by prayer, Paul expresses his wish, his desire, his own will. But in this, what he makes supreme is not his own will, but the will of God. And he's only interested in what God wants ultimately. And so Paul, by prayer, sought nothing apart from the will of God. And he realized that prayer was instrumental in bringing this to pass in his life. In other words, as a Christian, he never sought the will of God apart from prayer. And he knew that he could only ever come to experience it and to know it by prayer. By prayer, his will was made to fall in line with God's. And by prayer, he came to know and experience God's will for him and for the church. Which is, again, let me notice, a useful model of ministry for the church today. One which the church would do well to follow. We might ask the question with Paul, how can we expect to know and to experience the will of God? And the answer is only by prayer. In other words, let me put it like this. The church that doesn't pray is the church that finds that almost nothing is happening. The one thing she never experiences is the will of God in its fullness. And yet, the church that begins to pray is the church that finds that things are beginning to happening. They begin to find, as Paul did here, God at work. Thy will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is how Jesus teaches us to pray. For God's will to be done here on earth, even as it is done in heaven. And that's the amazing thing that we discover when we begin to pray. The will of God at work in our midst. Along with, in our hearts, a resignation that whatever God wills is best for his people. And it is exactly what we want. And so we have in all that I've been saying a model of Christian ministry and of Christian fellowship. It ought to be one of thanksgiving. It ought to be one of gospel service. And it ought to be one of prayer. 
Let me just ask you in closing, having outlined and really, as I say, only begun to outline what true ministry and true Christian worship and fellowship consists of. Can such things be said of us? And are these the things that we're seeking together or to put it in terms of what Paul is saying here? Are these the things that are so in our hearts and which our hearts are so full of which we are already uh, already desiring and already seeking? Uh, from God together. Are we expressing our thanksgiving? Are we serving God in our spirit in the gospel of his son? And are we praying for his will be, to be done in the church on earth as it is in heaven? Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together in singing a hymn of thanksgiving. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I'm